Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Emily Gerleo joins us from Brooklyn, New York. Emily is a co-founder and organizer of WNB.RB, a community and monthly Ruby meetup for women and non-binary people, and will soon be joining Shopify as a senior developer. Emily Gerleo, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you so much for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, I think this is the broadest answer, and maybe um, it's a little bit of a cop-out, but I think one common characteristic of well-maintained software is that it communicates its purpose. And so if you look at a piece of code in you know, well-maintained software, you can understand why that piece of code was written, if you changed it, what other things it might also change. Um, and I think there are a few ways a team could possibly accomplish this. I think you know, the code itself could be clean, it could have uh, descriptive abstractions, you could write really descriptive tests, you could write documentation or comments in the code, or you know, you could even have good like team communication and team-wide organizational knowledge about it. And I think those different techniques scale at different levels. So I'm not necessarily recommending all of them all the time, but I think different teams accomplish this in different ways. So as as there's different types of teams with their own unique situation and different skill sets, are there a few things within there you mentioned uh, like good abstraction. What, what, what do you mean by that for those that are listening? Might, might have heard that term, but they don't really know what that, how that tangibly applies to their code. So by an abstraction, I mean that you are taking your domain objects. Um, so the real life things that you are trying to represent in the code, and you are creating code patterns and modules and classes that represent them in a way that is both helpful to the reader of the code and also allows you to organize your code in a way that's extensible and maintainable. And I think (laughs) there are, the topic of writing good abstractions is so huge um, and impossible to just say like, here's what a good abstraction is. But I think one person who writes really well about this topic is Sandy Metz. And I would highly recommend her books, 99 Bottles of Object-Oriented Programming or Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby, (laughs) because those books like dive so deep into it. And I've learned so much about abstraction from them. Great. Yeah. We had uh, Sandy on, I guess, wow, it's been almost a couple of years now. Pandemic brain. Yeah, that's that's great. I'll definitely include links to to her books as well in the show notes for everybody listening and also for that past uh, episode. What is your current take on the metaphor technical debt? I, a lot of my answers might be cop-out answers, but I think it depends on the team, right? I, I think the words technical debt, you know, debt has a lot of negative implications. And so you could be implying like we made bad decisions here. But I don't think that's always the case when it comes to technical debt. Uh, one thing to keep going back to Sandy Metz and the uh, whole idea of abstractions, she says that choosing the wrong abstraction too early is worse than duplication, for example. 
And so it's possible that something that you wouldn't consider technical debt, a choice that you're making in the present moment, where you say, oh, I think I'm seeing a pattern here. I'm going to abstract it into a new class. And then six months later, you look back and you're like, oh, that abstraction actually wasn't right for our domain objects at all. You know, it, it's not necessarily debt. It's just the natural kind of change in understanding of your domain. So different teams are motivated by different things and they have different understandings. And so you can use the, the term technical debt if that's useful to you, but it's natural for code to, to change to the point where certain things that used to serve you well are no longer serving you well. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, in prepping for this conversation, I know that, you know, you've done quite a bit of work in open source and you've worked in on, pr on proprietary software. And I think our audience probably is a mix of that, I, I would assume. What do you see are a few key differences between how you say would approach maintenance type work on, say, an open source project versus something you're working on within the organization that currently employs you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about different techniques for understanding uh, what certain code does. So I think when you work on proprietary software, you can feel pretty confident that you know the only people who are consumers of the code that you write, or you know people who are going to have to actually read and understand the code, are the people you work with. And so I think you can employ techniques like internal documentation, organizational knowledge, poking your deskmate or your you know Slack buddy to be like, hey, why did we do this again? That can get you pretty far, especially on a small team. Once you start working on open source software, however, your assumptions are going to change about who is reading and consuming your software. And so instead of just the person working at the desk next to you, it might be a person halfway across the world who has no familiarity with the code that you wrote, but is using it in their project and at, you know, at two in the morning, your time, they stumble across a bug that is, you know, preventing them from um, writing a, a feature that they, they really need to get shipped. And so I think then um, that's when those abstractions come into play. Maybe like writing clean code is really more important when the audience you're communicating to is uh, a lot larger. Maybe um, do like documentation such as readmes uh, can become even more important or even really descriptive PR uh, comments. Because let's say this person who finds a bug in your open source code, they trace it back to a certain commit and they find the PR. Uh, if they don't know what that PR was for or why you wrote that specific line, then they're going to have a lot more trouble reporting that bug to you. And so you kind of want to enable people to talk to you about your code in the most productive way possible. And out of curiosity, what types of open source projects were you working on? Yeah, so when I worked at MongoDB in 2019 through 2020, I was working on the Ruby database driver, so the kind of client that connected to the database and would send requests uh, to it. And then on top of that uh, was also the Mongoid object document mapper, which if you're familiar with an ORM is an object relation mapper, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this is like the uh, document database version of it where it's object document mapper instead. So something that kind of maps a MongoDB document to a Ruby object and much like active record allows you to interact with them in a way that's uh, really intuitive to the language that you're using. 
That's great. Do you um, recall any, it's been a couple of years, do you recall <laughs> any fun challenges you were needing to navigate as you were working on an open source project like that? Oh, yeah. Um, I think, so I think one huge difference uh, between working on open source project and a proprietary project is you have to be a lot more careful about not breaking things in between uh, big feature uh, changes because, uh, for example, someone out there might be using the master branch of your open source project. And if you break the master branch, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world, but you might get uh, some complaints. And so I remember spending a lot of time planning projects such that every step of the way, I knew I wasn't going to be breaking any of the existing functionality. And only once we were happy with what, you know, everything that was encompassed within a breaking change, would we make that final change uh, such that someone who was using the master branch, for example, would actually see that change in their application. You know, it's always interesting thinking about how, in particular with open source projects where you have all these, quite often you don't even know who uses it, right? Until they identify themselves. And so like, we don't have a, you know, I don't know that Mongo has any, if they're tooling, if there's any sort of place where people can go register themselves and get like email updates or like change log, things like that. But I know from a lot of projects that I've worked on, it's very much like if you release things and it's going to require some changes in the any applications that are relying on it, keeping like a healthy change log, but also maybe like upgrade paths. Or there's a lot of like what's changing and why and how, how did you uh, wrap your head around like all those different aspects of that? We actually had a decent amount of tooling for that. Uh, my coworker, I think he was, he was very invested in creating the best change logs possible, the best kind of experience possible for the people who are consuming the software that we wrote. And so, um, along the way we would collect the tickets that we had worked on since the last release. And then this software tool would kind of aggregate all of them into a properly formatted list with links back to those tickets and short descriptions on all of them. We would organize them into like major changes, minor changes, bug fixes. Even with tooling, it it was a decent amount of work, but it was so necessary and, and I think appreciated and allowed us to have meaningful interactions with the people who were consuming the software that we used, that we created. Did you often, with that type of project, were you getting a lot of contributions outside of raising issues, like things that, problems or bugs that they were encountering, but did you have a lot of external people providing pull requests and things like that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And that was a really fun thing about working on open source code is that sometimes we'd get a pull request to, to make changes to part of the code that I had never read before. Because, <laughs> um, you know, it was a, a big project and an, an old project as well. And so sometimes I would have to... Well, sometimes the person who's contributing the code is more knowledgeable than the person who's paid to maintain it. And I, I think at first that intimidated me a little bit and, and gave me a bit of like imposter syndrome. Like, I, I don't think <laughs> they should be paying me to do this. But... Uh, you know, ultimately, I realized that my job wasn't to know every single inch of the code. It was to kind of be a steward of the project and understand like what are the what are the standards that we want to maintain in this project? What are the code styles that are important to us? 
do we want to make sure this is tested or not? And so I think that allowed me to approach situations like that with a bit more curiosity of like, oh, today I get to explore this part of the code base that I haven't looked at and try to understand what it's doing in order to help this person get the most out of this project. It always surprises me how often developers are nervous about digging into some gem thinking, well, this is the ideal way a gem should be. This person knew what they were doing. And then they'll be like, I'm having this weird issue interacting with it. I'm like, well, let's look at the code. You know, it's just, you can use gem open and it'll just open up in your editor. And it's like, it's just, you can make changes to it. What kind of advice would you have for people? Like, how do you start like wrapping your head around or feel less intimidated to sniff around and potentially even make changes to what might seem like a well already finished, polished, perfect gem at this point? Yeah, that that's an excellent question. And one that I encounter all the time as well, because even at work, you know, sometimes you're working with a more junior engineer and they're like, hey, I think I've encountered a bug in this gem or it's not, you know, it's not working in the way I expect it to, but I don't know why. And you're like, OK, let's look at what the gem's doing. And they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> why would I? that sounds dangerous? Why would I do that? But I think there are a few ways to approach it that uh, will have varying mileage for people. One way like you mentioned, uh, that Ruby has some great tools to kind of dig into source code. Uh, one, like you said, is gem open or bundle open, uh, where you can literally just open the source code for any gem that you have in your project um, on your local setup uh, and check out the files and see what the code does. I like to use that in conjunction with a debugger, so like binding pry or bybug, because you could literally stick a debugger in this third-party gem that's part of your application and then see where is your application interfacing with this gem and like is the information that you expect to be passed over actually being passed over and really you know i feel like it's so hands-on and so practical it's just like a it's just another directory in some ways of ruby files that you've downloaded right and so it's 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 not doesn't need to be that intimidating but i understand how it is do you re do you feel like there was a moment in your career where to get to that, did you feel like you needed to go through the process of, did it make more sense to have created, or maybe I'm also making an assumption, have you created a Ruby gem yourself or have you only ever worked on ones that are already working and iterate on them? Um, I've never created a gem that I would feel confident being used in production, but I've created them for fun. Like uh, for my RubyConf talk last year, I created a kind of silly gem called Fake Spear that generates Shakespeare quotes, but with Ruby-related words kind of interspersed. And so I say this in my talk like a hundred times. I don't think this is a gem that anyone should use for any reason ever. <laughs> um, but it was it was really fun to build it. <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah. And I'm going to dig into that, into your talk momentarily as well. But uh, I'm, I always think back to the as developers trying to wrap their head around that, but like knowing like, oh, you can create your own gem. Like, oh, I can, or why would I do that? Someone else already did something similar, or are you kind of like an advocate for being heavily reliant on third-party open source gems or building things like with I've had some people on the on the podcast talk about how the, one of the challenges for long-term maintenance is keeping all of your dependencies updated as well and that becoming like this messy dance that we have to play. Yeah, what's your experience been in that sort of capacity? Yeah. I think what's so challenging is that when people give opinions about stuff like this, they're like, oh, here's a very intense opinion that I'm, you know, 
not going to qualify and I think you should follow all the time. When, and then I think it's really easy to feel intimidated by that, to not understand those opinions and feel like, oh, well, maybe I'm not good enough because I don't really, I'm just following this advice blindly. So I think what's more important than having an, a strong opinion is to have a process to kind of reach a conclusion depending on what situation you're in. So for example, it's when you are thinking about introducing a third-party dependency into your application, I think it's really important to first do research and see what is out there. Um, because it's possible that there is something that's well-maintained, that's well-documented, and that you know kind of fits your need perfectly, where sometimes gems don't fit quite the, the feature that you are looking for, or they have so many features that you're like, I bet there is you know, a ton of overhead here that I don't need in my application. And so maybe it would make more sense for me to write my own little gem that does just this one thing rather than pulling in this big gem that does a hundred things. So once I think once you get comfortable going through that decision process and feeling confident in the conclusion that you reach, then you, you end up being able to uh, interact with open source libraries and, and you know, in the Ruby case, uh, gems more confidently. There's this interesting thing where as developers, I think you get like a lot of free things, right? It comes with it when you, when you package up a gem and then they have their own dependencies and then you're dealing with like long-term maintenance of the project or keeping things upgraded. And then you've got all these like dependencies that are all like, they're not all like in sync with each other, you know? And so it's like this interesting as I kind of said earlier, kind of dance of being like, great, how are we going to maintain not just our own code, but where what versions we're relying on and across many different spectrums of things. And so, yeah, I, I like that. Just thinking about having a very clear process for yourself to how you do research. And can you share any ideas around like what sorts of things they might be considering when it comes to like what would be on your checklist of things? Or you mentioned like, is it being actively maintained? Like how do you assess that? Yeah, good question. So um, I think my process, and I haven't thought a ton about this, but is something along the lines of first I would I would decide, you know, what features am I looking for in a gem that might solve this problem for me? Uh, and kind of list those out. Then I would do some research about the most popular gems that already do this stuff or something similar. And the great thing about Ruby is that the community has been around for so long at this point that there's almost always a gem that um, solves at least a similar problem. Once I have those gems, like you said, I want to understand, are they being actively maintained? Meaning is someone, is someone working on them or was the last time someone worked on it in 2015? <laughs> um, that's when you want to actually open up the GitHub of that gem, see when was the last commit, see if maybe there's like Sometimes uh, companies create these gems like Shopify or like consulting groups, ThoughtBot um, creates a lot of gems, which for me um, increases the confidence that they will continue to be maintained. And then also look at the readme because sometimes people will say this gem is no longer being maintained. Um, here's an alternative. And in which case that kind of gives you a better lead. So that's really important to me. And then the other thing I would consider when looking at the gem is the quality of the documentation as well. And so if you if the gem does everything you want it to do, but setting it up is 
takes forever because <laughs> they don't explain how. And with every change you make, you're going to have to dig through the source code. You know, I and I encouraged everyone to dig through source code earlier <laughs> in this interview. But if you have to do it all the time, then it's probably not a good use of your time when, you know, when adopting a new gem. So that's um, another thing. And lastly, you mentioned this, uh, looking through the dependencies of any gem you're considering adding. Because when you add one dependency, you add all the dependencies of that dependency and all the dependencies of those dependencies. So yeah, you can sometimes, you can inadvertently add a lot more to your application than you think you are. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. And one of the things you had mentioned was was related to one of your gems. And you gave a talk, a RubyConf last year, titled To Mock or Not To Mock. And as you mentioned earlier, like testing can be a quite important trait in maintainable software. And for those say let's not that are listening who might not be familiar with the concept of mocking in the testing world, can you provide a kind of a brief intro to that and then maybe talk about when you think it's appropriate to use mocks or not? Yeah, absolutely. So for those who aren't familiar with the concept, uh, when you are writing automated tests for your code, there are kind of two approaches you can take to create objects that are going to be used in those tests. The first, and I'm going to borrow these definitions from Martin Fowler, but the first is called the classical approach. And that's when you create real objects and then test their state as if you know, you're writing real code for your application. The second approach is called the mockist approach. And that's when you create fake objects that kind of approximate the real objects that you would write in your actual code. And instead of testing their state, you verify their behavior. One example that I gave in my talk is if you were writing software to uh, manage your inventory, if you were running a store, for example. And so you might have in your application objects that represent the warehouse where you keep all your stock and then orders that customers send in. So if you were taking the classical approach, you might create some real warehouse objects and some real order objects, then call some methods on them and say, okay, how much inventory does the warehouse have now? And is the order fulfilled when it should be fulfilled? Stuff like that. But if you were taking the mockist approach, what you might do instead is create fake versions of the order and the warehouse objects. And you know, depending on what coding language you're using, you'll approach this slightly differently, but almost every coding language has a mocking library for whatever test runner they use. And then you'll have those fake objects interact and then say, okay, did the order object receive a method called like fill? Or did the warehouse object receive a method call remove uh, to like remove inventory from it? And so rather than testing the state or how these objects end up after this whole interaction, you're testing the methods that get called on them and how they react to those methods. You're kind of trying to make sure that making sure certain methods are being called in the right order or that but you're not necessarily worried about what the response is from that or just that it was called in that type of scenario. So I think depending on what exactly you're testing, you could also mock out a response to make sure it, it you know gives the right response back. Uh, but I think primarily you're concerned about the, like you said, uh, the methods that get called, maybe the order they get called in, and also the arguments that they might receive to make sure that information is being passed around your application correctly. Hi there. 
Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Can you think of some other scenarios? Like, how does if your if your application say integrates with uh, an external API, and you don't want every single time that your test suite runs to have to interact with some third party API that may or may not be you know what you're necessarily want you know your CI server to blow up because their API is going undergoing maintenance or something like is that considered mocking or is it kind of a different sort of concept in the testing space? I think it depends who you ask. <laughs> One of the articles that I read in preparation for my talk that is by Martin Fowler, where he kind of outlines some different words for different types of test object replacement. Um, And so words like mock, stub, double, spy. And so if you ask some people, those things are all different. For the purposes of my talk, I kind of, I think I am referring to all of these things. When I say mock, I'm using mock as an umbrella term. And and so your example is one thing that I discuss in my talk, where I think one scenario where you might want to use a mock is when your application interfaces with a uh, third-party service. Like you said, you have no control over that service. Uh, They could charge you for too many requests. They could slow down your tests if they're not their service isn't operational that that day, or they could break your tests entirely. And so I think one scenario where it makes a lot of sense to use mocks is when your test is using these third-party services, which I I give this kind of an umbrella name in my talk, and I call these expensive resources, where because a third-party service might make your test slow or might charge you money, um, they are expensive, and thus it makes sense to mock them. I didn't even think about the fact that, you know, some, yeah, some APIs do charge you per request. And, you know, if you have a test suite that's doing a lot of different tests against that, checking their responses and stuff like that. Do you have any advice for people that are, are relying on third-party systems? They might use some sort of mocking or stubbing or, you know, in the Ruby, we have like VCR as like a way to like capture the response and such. Do you ever, ever encounter a scenario where, because you're using those types of tools, you might be getting a, like, Everything looks great according to your CI, but in production, things aren't working the way you expect them for some reason because the API changed, but there was no way for your app to know that. Like how do people how do how do how can teams best manage that sort of tricky situation? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I didn't cover in my talk just because 30 minutes is not a lot of time, but I <laughs> I spent like a decent amount of time thinking about. So I think there are some different potential approaches. Uh, One is to use mocking primarily, but then to have maybe a test that runs less frequently that doesn't use mocking, that actually does hit a real endpoint. Some teams like have a high tolerance for error in something like that, where if they see it happening on production, then um, they can go and fix it. There's going to be a trade-off between how expensive you want your tests, your automated testing to be 
versus how much fault can occur in your production application. You know, one of the things I wanted to speak with you about was I know that you're, and also mentioned in the introduction early on, is is that you're the co-founder and co-organizer of WNB.RB. What is that? Can you provide the the listeners with a bit of an intro and how they potentially get involved? Sure. WNB.RB is a community co-founded by myself and uh, Gemma Isroff for women and non-binary Ruby developers. Uh, We started out about a year ago as a monthly virtual meetup. Uh, So every month we have two women or non-binary speakers talk about Ruby technical subjects. Um, But we've kind of expanded into so much more than that, where now we have a really active Slack workspace. We have a bunch of kind of initiatives going on, um, an interview study group, a conference proposal working group that all of the proposals we submitted to RubyConf last year got accepted. We have a book club and a jobs board and (laughs) even more than that. So this is something that is very near and dear to my heart, which is uplifting marginalized uh, people in tech. And so if you are a woman or non-binary person and you like to write Ruby code, um, you can check us out on Twitter. Our username is WNB underscore RB. Great. I'll definitely include links to that for the audience. And just thinking about community building, do you have much experience doing that sort of thing in past uh, iterations of your career or just in, in life that you I'm just thinking about some people that might be think, curious, be like, oh, that's interesting. I can join groups like that. But am I the right type of person to help lead or start or found a community of some sort? What, what's your, how did you kind of get to that scenario to do that? I... I'm a bit of a chronic uh, community builder person, um, <laughs> which is not necessarily a good thing. And I think I've had to learn to like uh, focus my time on en- and energy on things that are most valuable to me. Uh, but I think the only way to learn how to do something like that is to actually do it. And so one thing that I'm really proud of in WNB.RB is we really encourage our community members to take responsibility for initiatives. And so Almost everything in this organization, Gemma and I do not do. Um, For example, the interview study group, we don't run that. The book club, we don't run that. Um, And so it's the kind of community where if you have an initiative that you want to start, we try to give people the resources and the support they need to to work on it because we know the community is not sustainable if we are the only ones doing work for it. And our goal ultimately is to make this community as sustainable as possible where you know, if we ever wanted to step down from it and let other people lead it, it, it should be doable. We shouldn't be the, the people holding it all together. That makes sense. Do you find there's a, some interesting overlap between, say, helping facilitate and organize and lead a uh, community like that? And this is all online, I'm assuming. Do you find some overlap or similarities with like being a maintainer on an open source project? Are there some similar aspects of that? Oh, yeah. Um, And it's funny, we're currently working on our website, uh, which we're hopefully going to be releasing soon. And I've sort of served as the project lead on that. But my goal from the beginning was not to write all the code for it, um, because I don't want to and I don't have to. And it's funny how playing this role as like website project lead has really been a reflection on my experience organizing the community as a whole because I think my role as the website project lead, and our website is entirely open source, is to 
set long-term goals and vision. So I designed the website, I create, I create issues, I um, set up pairing partners to make sure that nobody is ever alone when they are working on an issue um, so that they don't get blocked or lost. Um, I answer questions, I organize resources like our Heroku deployment and our domain. And I think that's very, very, very similar to how I view the work as being an organizer of the community as a whole. You know, you're setting vision, providing resources, um, and then letting people do work that's interesting and meaningful to them. Do you feel like that process of, you know, setting vision and, and goals for the community or an open source project is something that you need to have sorted out before you start working on it and releasing that or circuit? Or do you, are these things you tend to need to evolve over a period of time to, as, as you learn, I suppose? I think a little bit of both. Like I said, when Gemma and I started this group, we envisioned it as a monthly meetup. But right after our first meetup, everyone's question was, where's the Slack? Or like, where's the Discord? How do we keep in touch with each other? And we were, Gemma and I were like, oh, what we thought the community needed, which is a space to have technical discussions um, in a like safe and uplifting environment, was just one small piece of the whole puzzle. And so I think it's important to start with a vision because if you don't have anything, then it's hard to get started. You feel so overwhelmed by like the amount of stuff that needs to happen. But a community isn't sustainable unless you're getting input from the people in it tailoring it to the needs of the community members, because then otherwise it's just two people in a room, you know, saying what needs to get done, which is like not helpful either. Thanks for, uh, for, for digging into that with us. And again, I'll include links to that in the show notes for people. And I do know that you're seeking sponsors and such. So if anyone's listening, you have any, which give us your quick pitch. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, first of all, we are absolutely seeking sponsors. Any amount helps. What we're planning to do for the next year, I think is really ambitious. We're hoping to provide scholarships to send women and non-binary developers to conferences. We're hoping to provide stipends for open source work to make open source more diverse and inclusive, and also hoping to provide a budget for educational resources for those in our community who wouldn't be able to afford those you know, books or uh, online courses. And so if your company sponsors WNB.RB, there are some awesome benefits. Um, we will have these on our website and I'll also tell you the, the email to reach out to us and I can tell you more about it then. But on, the, on a higher level, you are connecting your company with probably the biggest community of women and non-binary Ruby developers in the world, which allows you to hire from our community and hopefully increase the diversity of your workforce as well. And also you are supporting more diversity in the Ruby community, which I think is only gonna make our community stronger. That's awesome. And definitely, yeah, thanks again for that. Um, again, everybody, I'll include links to that in the show notes. So a couple of quick last questions for you. Quickly circling back to a topic we, you know, about technical debt and maintenance type work, what have you found to be an effective way to organize that type of work? Do you just take care of it when you spot it, or do you have some other approach that you and your teams have tended to experiment with and see if how, and how effective was that? That's a great question. And I think much like building communities, that's it's so important to, to prioritize, right? If you just look at all the technical debt you have and say, we're going to do it, like it's so hard to approach <laughs> um, in, from that perspective. So I think what has 
helped for me and, and an approach that I wish I had taken more in my career is tying pieces of technical debt to upcoming features or projects that you hope to accomplish. And so one quick story is that when I was working at MongoDB, I was working on a really big new feature, which was the client-side encryption feature. Uh, basically, a user of the driver could encrypt all of their data on their machines such that only they would ever be able to decrypt it. Then it's written to MongoDB stored in an encrypted state. So if you're storing it in a third-party server, you know even a MongoDB admin could go in and they wouldn't know what your data contains. Turns out that this feature required a few other features that many of the newer drivers already had. Uh, so you know, like the Go driver and the Java driver, uh, there were a bunch of different driver teams. I, being new to the team, did not know that the Ruby driver did not implement many of these other features and that this was part of our like tech debt backlog. And once I got to the point in the project where I needed these other features in order to continue, only then did we have the discussion of, as a team of like, oh, we need these other features and we need to implement them now. <laughs> um, and so that, that was an example in my career where tech debt really slowed down a project that I was working on. And if we had had a meeting as a team where, and I think this was like a knowledge breakdown because the people who had the tech debt knowledge were not working on the project. I was working on the project, but did not have the tech debt knowledge. But yeah, if we had sat down, laid out all of the tech debt and said what pieces of tech debt are going to be applicable to these projects coming up, then um, I think we could have prioritized accordingly. And that's an approach that I always try to take in the future because tech debt, like I said, when you try to do it all at once, it is not doable. And so having goals and priorities is really, really important. We'll be back with our interview with Emily in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Emily Gerleo. One of the things you touched on there was, you know, you might have not have known that it was lacking some features, but there might be a list that some other people have put together somewhere. I find that I've talked to a lot of teams where they don't know about that list, <laughs> you know, or it's never someone created a list and then like nobody updated it when things got addressed or it just looks like this. Like, wow, is this stuff still applicable or not? You mentioned like wishing you had gone through that process just because you go forward. How would you maybe experiment with making sure that like people new to your project that you're working on already have enough familiarity when you don't necessarily have time to walk everybody through everything, right? Yeah, and I think uh, this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation where different teams are going to benefit from the use of different tools. So I think up until I joined that team at MongoDB, they were totally happy keeping this information in their heads because it was a small, you know, really kind of quick and agile team, agile in the fast sense, not in the like software processes sense. So once another team member was added, that process kind of broke down. And so one thing that I kind of wish we had done is had a 
clearer way to label our, for, we're using JIRA at this point, but I think with any kind of ticketing system should work the same, you know, have tags and labels uh, communicating the status of different tickets. And so how do I know whether this ticket that's been in the backlog for a hundred years is like just a feature we've been thinking of or is a required feature that we have just never gotten to? You know, what do you consider tech debt on your team? I think having a process to label those things really forces you to communicate with each other and agree. And we said this earlier as well, different teams are going to have different definitions of what tech debt is. So I think reaching a point where you could collectively label the tech debt already forces you to do so much important communication. I think that's true. Yeah, I know that some people, I've talked to some people where they worry that you create like a huge list of things and it kind of gets, does anyone have time to ever go through the said list of all the things? Or, But there's also, as you mentioned, there's teams where people are carrying that on their head and then so you have new people coming to the project and then you're like, they're like, oh, why is it like this? Or, you know, and they're like, oh, we've already, we had discussed that like two years ago and decided it wasn't an issue, a big enough issue to do that right now. And so um, I know people, there's probably people listening who might be in that sort of scenario where they've maybe recently joined a company and they're experiencing some pain points working with the projects and they're, but they might've said like, oh, what's going on with this thing? And someone's like, oh yeah, we kind of sat on that. We're not going to do that. Um, can you make any recommendations for those people joining on how they might revisit those conversations and not just assume like, well, I guess if nobody else seemed to care about this, I should probably stop worrying about it. But if it's actually causing them some friction and they're a new person, you have that. I feel like there's an opportunity when you're a new person on a team to help highlight these things and be like, no, no, we can get this stuff sorted out, right? Yes. And I think that requires a degree of confidence that sometimes it's hard to muster as a new person on a team. Uh, but it's very important both as a newcomer to a team and as you know, uh, more established members of the team to realize that new people have a fresh perspective uh, and aren't kind of indoctrinated in some of, the, uh, some of the worst processes of the team, right? <laughs> because being on a team long-term, you get, you get to have that kind of flow uh, state, which is awesome, and you gel as a team, but you also come to accept some of the less uh, ideal aspects of the team, whether it's like some processes that aren't quite working or um, you know tools you're using that aren't really suited to the team. So I think it's important when you start on a new team to really listen to your own experience and you know to hear yourself when you're thinking, I bet this could be better. And I some people um, really discourage uh, jumping around to different jobs. I think one cool thing about experiencing, different jobs or different teams, even in the same company, is you learn different ways that people do things. And that's a lot of valuable experience that you can contribute to a new team. So I think uh, I would definitely encourage people to yeah listen to listen to your heart <laughs> and, um, and speak up when you feel like something could be better. That's great. So my last few quick questions for you. Is there a non-software development say, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to people on a regular basis in our industry? Meaning just a book that I like? <laughs> yeah, something that you find yourself recommending to peers that may not be like, oh, here's object-oriented programming book. I So one of my favorite work-related books that is not software-related is uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And I think uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about what this book is about. Um, I've heard people say, 
oh, isn't that just about like being uh, truthful to the point of cruelty? Like just saying whatever is on your mind to your teammates. No, <laughs> um, it's a really insightful book about managing by establishing trust between yourself and your reports and thus allowing things that would otherwise go unsaid to be said. And so it's really helped me uh, when I've managed interns or, or new grads at previous jobs, try to help us uh, establish a rapport with them and try to get the most out of our one-on-ones. And even if you're not managing people, I think it has some really helpful tips for just managing the relationships you have at work, whether or not they are formal manager-managee type relationships. That's great. Yeah, the, um, I've read about a half of that book so far. I do need to finish it. Um, but yeah, it was, but I also know people that have skimmed it, read it, or these got through the first few chapters like, oh, I just need to be more direct with feedback. And I, I maybe <laughs> let people like, I don't know if that's exactly what they're kind of pitching there, but um, like thinking about how that applies to like, you know, as you mentioned, working in open source or pull requests process, there's a lot of communication that goes back and forth. Like there's the uh, sending the PR and providing information. There's a the reviewing it. And there's the other, there's also the aspect of receiving the input from someone else. It's like these different steps in that process and trying to find a healthy way to have meaningful conversations about the code, not the person, you know, but also sometimes you do need to have a conversation about the person and their, their approach to working with teammates or with you as a manager or other and such like that. Yeah. And like you said, it's not just about, oh, say whatever is on your mind all the time. Um, and there's, there are a lot of helpful diagrams in the book that um, I like very much. And one is a kind of four quadrant graph of different types of ways you can express an opinion where radical candor is like you are being both honest and like helpful. And then the, the worst, the kind of opposite quadrant is you're being both nice, but also dishonest where it's like, and there, there are nicer words for this in the book. So if you if you think I'm explaining it poorly, that is true. But ultimately saying, you know, being nice to someone and then thinking negative things about them behind their back, you might think that's doing them a favor, but it's really not. And ultimately that's kind of the worst way you could possibly communicate with someone else. And I think that's true no matter what the relationship is between you and the other person. Even if, yeah, like you said, you're an open source maintainer and someone gives you a PR, um, you have to learn to communicate both critically, but also effectively, kindly. Um, and those are skills that are going to take you through your whole life. Excellent. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? On my Twitter, which is at Emily Drolleo, uh, E-M-I-L-Y-G-I-U-R-L-E-O. And I also have a website, which is emilydrolleo.dev. We'll definitely include those links in our show notes for everybody. And so it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Emily. Thanks for talking shop. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time. 